Romans chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this evening. Romans chapter 3, we're picking up here. We ended chapter 2 last week. It is good to see you. I know you're staying warm, doing the best you can. This is why we moved, so we could cool off. Romans chapter 3, all are under sin. That would be a good description for this chapter. The Jew and the Gentile are under sin. That's what Paul is going to establish. He's already done that, actually. If we start back in chapter 1, we would note the gospel is for all, verses 16 and 17. And then the all is specified to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1, 16 and 17. In chapter 2, in verse number 9, all are under judgment. Judgment to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And the reason for that is all are under sin. The Jews are without excuse, but so too were the Gentiles. We read that in chapter 1. Paul said they are without excuse because they knew God. The Jews are without excuse because they had the law of God. Hearing the law is not sufficient. James would say you must be a doer of the law, a doer. You must live the word of God. And that's really what we read in chapter 2. A Jew was one who was spiritual, not just physical. And Paul's point was to establish that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Both have lived unrighteously. Both are then in need of Jesus. Now, the shock of this to the Jews was great and immediate, which is why there are so many questions in this chapter. The first one is, well, <laughs> what was the advantage of being a Jew? And so we'll note that in verses 1 to 8, Paul will explain. And then Paul will talk about the Jews, and they will ask another question. Are we better than they? Are we any better off than they are? And he'll answer that question. We'll deal with that, verses 9 to 20. And then near the end of the chapter, they will ask ultimately then, is he the God of the Jews only? And maybe Paul asking that question. Is God the God of the Jews only? And so he'll answer that as well. What is the point of being a Jew? Well, let's begin there in chapter 3 and verse 1. And that is the question. Then, coming out of verses chapter 2 and the end of that chapter, coming out of that, then what advantage has the Jew? Second question. Or what is the benefit of circumcision? The answer is given in verse number 2. The King James would say, chiefly, first. Paul was great in every respect. That's the answer. What is the advantage? It's great in every respect. But he doesn't list all of the ways it's great. He simply says, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. He doesn't note all of their advantages. He actually will do some of that later. But he does talk about the chief advantage, the greatest advantage. The greatest advantage that the Jews had is they had the Word of God. And that in and of itself is quite a treasure if we had a treasure box and the Word of God was the treasure, it'd be full. Because that alone would have provided so many other advantages. You would have had communion with God. 
if you had his word, you would have had truth, morality, family, marriage. You would have had unknown information by man at the time. Sometimes you'll read it in an apologetics context as pre-scientific information. You would have gotten that from the Word of God. The idea of germs, you would have now, it wouldn't have been spelled out that way, but you would have been told by God to avoid dead bodies. You would have been told that. You would have been told by God to take lepers and put them outside of the camp. You would have been told that. Those things alone would have given you access to information that would have just been absolutely beneficial to your life, to your health, even beyond your own knowledge of what it meant. Money, interpersonal relationships, religious life, wisdom, the book of Proverbs would have been a part of your wisdom from God. Prophecy, you would have had that. Present, future, Messiah coming. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, notice how this book opens. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. Where did he promise that beforehand? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Who would have had access to that information? Well, you would have. Chiefly, he says. He says in every respect, and that's true. And he will go on later to enumerate others. Turn over to chapter 9 and notice what he says here. What advantage was it being a Jew? In chapter 9 and verse 1, Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed for, from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul is a Jew, and he is talking about and expressing his concern and care for his Jewish countrymen, my Jewish brethren. Then he says this in verse 4, concerning those Jews who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. What advantage has the Jew in every respect? Chiefly, unto you were committed the very oracles of God. Another question then in verse number three. What then? What if some did not believe? Their unbelief or did not their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? So the question is, what if some did not believe? And Paul's answer is that their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. He's going to talk about God's judgment, and that centers around the question. And Paul will argue in verse number four, may it never be, King James, I think, would say, God forbid. May it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged.
let God be found true and every man a liar. Maybe it's because of the sin of chapters 1 and 2 or because of the things said in chapter 2 that these questions arise. His point is, sin is the reason for God's judgment. God is just in his judgments because of sin. And then he quotes David, Psalm 51, 4, where David says as much. And the reason David is repenting in Psalm 51 is because of sin. And David says that God is just in his judgment of sin. God's forbearance is just. And since God is good and merciful, then God overlooked and was patient and merciful. And as a result of that, it might be confused or thought that then God shouldn't have judged because his grace or our sin prompted his grace. And so that's verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Verse number 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, God forbid. For otherwise, how would God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. Because sin prompts God's grace, then God judges sin. And so the thought may have been, well, is God unrighteous? We sin, he gives grace. Over in chapter 6, the question will be, should we sin more then? And the answer will come back the same. God forbid. No, you should not sin more in order to get more grace. God is merciful and gracious and kind, and that's unfortunately being misunderstood. God is not unrighteous. He's righteous. He's fair. He's just. Your sin deserves judgment. But if God gives you grace, you should then allow chapter 2 and verse 4, the goodness of God to lead you to repentance. You shouldn't then infringe upon that grace further. And as the apostle Paul preaches grace, it seems that the Jews, some Judaizers otherwise, took the position that Paul is soft on sin. That Paul is saying, you go out here and do evil, it doesn't matter because God's going to be gracious to you. And Paul says, that's slanderous. Verse number eight, he says, and why not as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. That's not at all. Uh, may it never be true. If sin brings grace, you should not sin more. You should allow God's goodness to lead you to repent. We began with God's goodness, and that's how the book opens, and that's how Scripture tells us about God. Then we ran into the Gentiles sinning, chapter 1, 18 to 32. The result of that was God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. We turned to the Jews in chapter 2, and they did the same thing. Now that all are under sin, then God has been merciful and kind and gracious, but God judged both based on sin. The problem is sin. And God's judgment of that is right. And so God gives grace and mercy, but it should not be thought of as something you take advantage of. 
verses 9 to 20, Paul will drive this point home further, and there will be more questions, beginning in verse number 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In fact, it is the issue of the book. Sometimes you'll hear the book of Romans described, and someone will say, like myself, this book is about justification. And it is. It's about how God declares a person just. What we should add is, why do you need justification? This book is also about the fact that you need it. Now, why do you need it? And that underscores the problem of the book. The problem of the book is sin. And sin is the issue. Now that you're in it, how can you get out of it? Well, now it's a book about justification. Because in sin, the Jews and the Gentiles find themselves in the same place, both under sin. The question is, are we, the Jews, with all of those advantages, are we any better? Well, in the end, no. Now, you had every advantage to be better, but you didn't live that out. And as a result of that, everybody is in the same place. All are under sin. Are we better than they? Likely, if you had asked the Jews, they would have said yes. They would have, and in their time and their life with the Lord and his ministry, over and over and over again, they would have said, yes, we're better than them. The, the woman in John 4 says to Jesus, why are you talking to me? You know the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You know that. We have no dealings with each other. Peter in Acts chapter 10, you know it's an awful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company with a man of another nation. Jesus referred to one woman as can't take the food from the children and give it to the dogs. This was the state, and if you had asked, were they better? The Jews would have said, yes, 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 and yes. They were better off. They had every advantage, but they weren't better because they didn't live better. Chapter 2 reads like chapter 1. In the end, they were all under sin. You can read this in other passages. One that comes to mind would be Ephesians 2. Let's go over there, read a few passages very quickly. And I hope and trust that you will read this as you do in these epistles, especially written by Paul, where he will use words like you and your and us. And sometimes he's talking about Jew and Gentile. Now, he's a Christian writing to Christians. That's understood. But he very often takes a step before both were Christians. And he will talk about he and others as Jews and you as Gentiles. Ephesians 2 is one of those examples. He says in verse number 1, And you, Ephesians, you, you brethren, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the way you were. But verse number 3 says, Among them we too. Well, if verse 1 opens with you, and verse 2 says we, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. You Gentiles walked. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And as it turns out, we were too. Verse number 3, 
among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive, how? Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the person riches of, his, riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may base boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared for beforehand so that we would walk in them. All of that language and more, if we were to continue to read down to verse 16, he'll talk about our peace. You that were far off have never been brought near by the blood of Christ, and now he's reconciled us both into one. That's the language of the New Testament. That's really the language of the epistles. The Jews and the Gentiles under sin and in need of Jesus, and the only way of that reconciliation is through the gospel. Paul then enumerates, beginning in verse 10, the Old Testament scriptures saying as much. As it is written, he ends verse 9 by saying, we have already, again, I think the King James might say, proved, charged, We've already set forth the evidence that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. That evidence is chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then he says, as it is written. What's written? Beginning in verse 10 down to verse number 18, several quotes from the Old Testament about Jews and Gentiles, humanity, and sin. As it is written, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one there is no one, none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouths is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those quotes come from <clears throat> Psalm 14, 1 to 3. Psalm 53, 1 to 3. Psalm 5 and verse 9, Psalm 140 and verse 3, Psalm 10 and verse 7, Isaiah 59, 7, Psalm 36 and verse 1. And if you were to read those passages, you will find talking about Jews and Gentiles, all of those things being said. And really, as you can read that, the point is they've given their whole being to sin. The whole of them has been engaged. And that's the way it reads back in chapter 1. They knew God. They didn't glorify him as God. They exchanged God. This is done with knowledge. And so as you read the things that are said, you can see their mind is engaged. Verse number 11, there is none who understands. That's the mind. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. 
Together they have become useless. None who does good, not even one. Their throat, their tongues, their mouths, you can hear it. Their throat is an open grave. Tongue, they keep deceiving. Poison as under their lips, serpent. Mouths full of cursing and bitterness. Feet swift to shed blood with their hands. Destruction and misery in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And therein lies ultimately the problem. Chapter 1, this is the Gentiles. Chapter 2, this is the Jews. And so, are we better than they? No. We have all lived the same life. Sometimes you might think of it in terms of, well, there are members of the church and then there's the world and you might be tempted to make the members of the church the Jews and the world, the Gentiles, and that's really not quite the same here. Um, as That's just not really what it is. The, the Jews, as God's chosen people, the Gentiles actually started with God. That's what we read in chapter 1, that they did know God. They exchanged God. They did that first. They actually gave up the knowledge of God first. And then the Jews came and did the same thing. And so when you read through the Old Testament, most often what, what Moses and the prophets are saying is don't live like the nations because the nations once knew God and then they cast him off. And then the Jews come along and they then emulate the nations. They say we want to be like all the nations around us and they actually end up being just like them, idolatrous, abominable, uh, ungodly, impious, and all of the things that got these nations put out of the land are the very things that the Jews ended up doing. Paul says they are all under sin. They are all in need of justification, and the only means of that justification is by faith. The psalmist in Psalm 2 actually says at one point, they will band together and operate in harmony against God and his Christ. Go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 in verse number 1, the psalmist says, why are the nations in an uproar? <clears throat> and the peoples devising a vain thing. The nations in verse 1 would be the Gentiles. The peoples in verse 1 would be the Jews. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. And they say, let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon, Mount, Mount, upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today have I begotten you. It's a messianic psalm, that verse, but it's also indicative of the Jews and the Gentiles actually working together in concert against God and against his anointed or against his Christ. 
which is what you would read in the gospel of our Lord. You would read the Jews in concert with the Romans, the Jews and the Gentiles working together against God and against Christ. They are all under sin. Verses 19 and 20. Sin is the problem of the Jew and the Gentile. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Sometimes you, you'll read it and it will have the word the in front of it with reference to the law of Moses. Other times, just law in general. Really, I don't guess it much matters one way or the other unless the context demands that it matters, as we'll see in chapter 7. But he says, now we know that whatever the law says, whatever law says, or whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be accountable to God. Contextually, what we've been talking about, we've been talking about Jew and Gentile under sin. Well, that's the whole world. That is the whole world. And what are they? If they are all under sin, then they're all accountable to God. And God is going to be righteous in his judgments of sin. The law governs those who are under it. Sin under the law causes, closes every mouth. Sin makes all the world accountable to God. And verse number 20 explains, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Gentiles have gotten themselves into sin in chapter 1. How do they get out? Well, what did they invent to themselves? Idols. They invented their own mind, their own religion, became their own gods. There's no way out of sin from there. Well, the Jews had the law, but they're also under sin. How do they get out? Someone might say, the law. Well, no, what the law will do is point out sin. You have sin. Now, how do you get out? Through the law, Paul says, comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, I've broken the law. I know that now. What's my way out of that? Well, it's not the law, because the law is just going to keep telling you that you've sinned. There is no way out from here for the Jew or the Gentile. The only way out is grace. The only way out is faith. That's the only way out. There's no other way out of sin, not for the Gentile and not for the Jew. You cannot figure it out on your own if you're a Gentile. There's no way. You don't have the revelation of God, and there's no way you're a Jew who can work your way out. There's not a, you know, once you break the law, it's broken. Obeying it after that won't fix the problem. If you, if, if we were a very strict society on speed limits, if we were, <laughs> and you went above the number posted, you would only have to do that one time to be a lawbreaker. Now, if it says 70 and you go 75, you've broken the law. Strictly speaking, you've broken it. That's above the number. That thing says speed limit. You've gone above the limit. You've transgressed. You've gone beyond. Now, getting back down to 69 or 68 or 65 won't suddenly fix the problem that you went 75. You still went 75. Going lower doesn't change that fact. That's the nature of law. It tells you what's wrong. It tells you the violation, but it doesn't fix it. It just keeps pointing it out. 
And please hold in your mind that sin is the problem. And we've been talking about sin in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. We'll talk about it in chapters 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul will do something with sin that I don't know if it's ever done anywhere in Scripture. He will give sin life and let it talk and act and let us see it. He will personify sin. In fact, he's introducing it here. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. And there's going to be this interplay with law and sin. And he is going to talk about God giving the law on one hand and then sin using the law against the people to whom it was given. And he will give life to sin. But this thought here at the end of verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You're not going to work your way out of sin. You're not going to suddenly figure it out and be good enough. You're not going to be justified that way. And what for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You're really going to see that in chapter 7. The Jews, as he pointed out here, make their boast in the law. In chapter 2, verse number 23, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, you dishonor God. In fact, trying to be justified by law, having sinned, you ever read chapter 7? Look over there in verse 24. You, you ever heard this passage read or you ever read it? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That's the end of the person, the Jew, trying to work out of sin. I'm going to obey the law in such a way, I'm going to work my way out. Chapter 7 and verse 24 is the end of that. You will end and ask, how can I get out? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Well, it won't be you. It will be the grace of God and faith in Christ which is what's talked about next from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. The law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, verse 21. But now apart from the law or apart from law, righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. You note the word all again, for there is no distinction. Between whom? Between the Jew and the Gentile. Who is this for? All those who believe. There is no distinction. Why isn't there any distinction? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are in the exact same position. Since justification can't come by law, justification can only come by grace. Grace comes from God's character, and God's grace is a free gift. This is really, in essence, the whole of the Bible. Apart from the law, God's righteousness is manifested. And the reason it's apart from the law is because it's God's character, innately so. It's who God is. That's the place where grace comes from. Exodus 34, verse 6 and verse number 7 is God telling Moses who he is. And among the first things that God says is, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious. God is good. You're my 
every human being's justification after we sin comes from the goodness of God, the grace of God, the favor of God. The law and the prophets, the goodness he revealed in there is witness to his righteousness. We'll talk about the law in more detail in chapter 7, but do know this. The law was given, according to Deuteronomy 10 and verse 13, among other reasons, for their good. There is goodness revealed in the law, and it was given for their good. It's God's grace. The law was intended for them to induce faith. It was. They were to have faith under that law. It's the only way justification comes. Verse number 22, the righteousness of God, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. How is anyone going to be saved? They are going to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. For whom? For all who believe and there is no distinction. On some level, you keep hearing me say the same thing. Partly because the text keeps saying the same thing. They are all under sin. They're all in need of grace. They're all in need of faith. Since all are under sin, since all cannot justify, God will justify. But how will he do it? Verse 24. Being justified, King James says, freely. Being justified, how? As a gift. This is the reason it's apart from works. The reason it can't be from works is because it's a gift. If God gives you a gift, then by definition, you didn't work for it. It's not a gift if you worked. It's a debt. If you go to work and then somebody pays you, they didn't exactly give you a gift. In fact, you would rather, if this is the way you're defining gifts, you'd like to talk to them about their definition. You'd like to rework the definition of a gift. We get gifts maybe on a birthday or something. Typically, you just have to wake up. You, you don't have to go to work. And so that's kind of Paul's argument here. How does justification come? It comes as a gift. How? By his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The Jews' greatest problem was they kept rejecting Jesus. And Jesus is the gift. And Jesus is the means of justification. Jesus is God's grace offered. It's a free gift, but it has to be Jesus. And you hear our Lord say the same things over and over and over again. Come to me. I'm the way. You need me. Well, the reason for that is that's the Father's plan. The gift of God is Jesus Christ. We read John 3.16, we might even quote it, but that's exactly what it's saying. For God so loved the world that he gave grace, gift. He gave, but what did he give? Rather, who did he give? He gave his only begotten son. What do you need to do? Whoever believes in him. Well, that's how it works. But all through Christ's personal ministry, the stone which the builders rejected this is the one that God gave, and that's the very one you've rejected. Now, imagine if you're Paul. You, too, once rejected him. 
And then he appeared to you and made you an eyewitness of him. And now you speak, having obeyed the gospel, Acts 9, 22, 26, and now by inspiration, you have God's mystery revealed. And you walk into a synagogue full of Jews. Guess what they're doing? They have the Old Testament scriptures open and they're reading. And there you stand. And guess who they won't believe? Now you know. You're not guessing or happens. You absolutely know. And what do you do? Read through the book of Acts. Paul will go into the synagogues. And what will he do? Reason with them out of the scriptures to bring them to a knowledge of whom? To bring them to Christ. Now imagine if you're Paul, how much you want them to have what you have. And how many times they keep stirring up the people. They keep running you out of the cities. They keep trying to get you arrested. They even want to kill you. When you read Romans 9, the first part of the chapter in Romans 10, you're listening to Paul saying, my brethren, my heart's desire to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He says, I could wish I was accursed. The idea is, I wish I could go to hell for them. I wish I could be separated from Christ for my brethren. I wish I could. Obviously, he can't do that. But so much that he desired to want them saved, and preaching and preaching and preaching, and imprisonments and in perils and all of the things, largely led by the Jews. They're not going to get there without Jesus. The reason is sin. And God's grace is Christ. And if you don't have faith in Christ, then you, you can't get out of the sin that you're in. Verse 24, justified as a gift by his grace, how? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom... God has displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In verse 25, he says, God has set him forth as a propitiation. It is the appeasement, expiation, the placating, the expiating force. Uh, God's wrath is going to be meted out because of sin. And Christ's blood satisfies, appeases the wrath. The wrath stops because of the the Old Testament, the mercy seat, the place of expiation, the appeasement of God's wrath, satisfying the wrath that is due the sin. And Paul says he set Christ forth publicly for everybody to see that, to demonstrate his righteousness. That's actually what's been called into question, the righteousness of God, which is what happens in those first several questions. And so Paul says, listen, Jesus' blood, that's where you need to have faith. That's the expiating power. You and I need to hear that as well because if we're not careful, it's wholly possible to, as a New Testament Christian, turn Christianity 
into a works-based system where you and I could start to believe the same things the Jews believed. You could start to believe that, boy, I better make sure I work right so that I will be justified. If you take a step back from there, justification is being put into two places. It's being put in the grace of God, and it's being put in faith in the blood of Jesus. But it's not being put in your works. Don't become a New Testament Jew and then do what the Old Testament Jews did because that's not where justification is. Justification is from God's grace and our faith in Christ's blood. And what this does in verse 26 and 27, 26 and 25 is demonstrate God's righteousness at the present time so that he would be, and there are two things listed, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is it that saves? Grace saves. Grace only? Absolutely not. Because grace only can't save because you need faith. Faith only? Absolutely not. Faith can't save alone because you need grace. You're always going to need God's grace and you're always going to need faith. And what this does, this entire process and plan, is it ultimately justifies God. It sets forth God's righteousness. He is both just in the way he did these things, as well as the justifier, the one who makes us right, the one who makes us as we ought to be. This, again, is what Jesus is saying in his earthly ministry. Look at a few passages. Look back in John. Actually, we could go through the entire book of John, and we would just read this over and over again. But we'll start in John 6. John 1, 12, I'll just tell you, it says, He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, Christ, to them gave he the right to become sons of God. What gives you the right to become a son of God is your acceptance of Jesus. Your belief in Jesus is what gives you the right to become. In John chapter 6 and verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Well, you need to do to work the works of God. Believe in Jesus. John 5 and verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into bondage, but has passed from death to life. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You can't reject the grace of God. You can't reject faith in Jesus. It is God's plan. It's God's way out of sin. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. Another question, where then is boasting? It's excluded. Why is it excluded? By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith Apart, note the expression, from the works of the law. It's excluded not by 
uh, is excluded. Boasting is excluded. There is nothing to boast about when you receive a gift. The gift is not because you're so good. It's because the giver is so good. The gift comes from God. So it excludes boasting on the part of man. Nobody turns to God and say, you owe me salvation. Nobody turns to God and says, I've been so good. Oh, wait, there was a man. Look in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse number 9, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Does that sound like the Jews you read about in the New Testament? Two things. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, how did you get to be righteous? Your works. Because your works were so good. What did you think of other people? Not much. Listen to what Jesus says. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, what is it that makes you unlike other people? Your good works. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was uneven, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Once we're in sin, we really don't have a whole lot to boast about. And we're not going to work our way out of the sin. That's what Paul is trying to get across to the Jews. Chapter 1, the Gentiles are under sin. Chapter 2, the Jews are under sin. Chapter 3, all are under sin. And as such, what do you need to get out? Well, you don't need human wisdom, and you don't need your works. What do you need? You need the grace of God, and you need faith in Jesus. And without those, you're not going to make it. Paul has now introduced this thought. He's introduced the idea of law not justifying. He's introduced the idea of law and sin and those two thoughts. You'll want to hold those in your mind. We'll revisit them in chapter 7. But what he does immediately next in chapter 4 is Paul explains further this idea. And he talks about Abraham and David. And it's almost as if he calls witnesses to the stand to further make the case of chapter 3. Two people the Jews would have had a lot of confidence in, and two people the Jews would have believed were justified by God. And Paul's going to explain just how that happened. Both of these men were men of faith. We'll get into that next week, Lord's will.